Did you know, due to modern agricultural practices, you have to eat eight oranges today to get the same amount of vitamin A as your grandparents would have gotten from just one? Welcome to Sustainability Matters Today, where you'll learn about the fantastic work people and organizations are doing right now to heal our planet through environmentally friendly products and methodologies. My name is Daniel Hartz, and I speak with amazing champions of sustainability who prove a clean and beautiful future on Earth is possible because green practices oftentimes make financial sense. I aim to uncover the important role money plays in people's decisions to adopt and commit to environmentally friendly practices in order to create a chain reaction of positive change. In each episode, you'll also learn practical steps you can take every day to live a more eco-friendly lifestyle. Let's jump in. In this episode of the Sustainability Matters Today podcast, I interview Gabe Brown, owner of Brown's Ranch and a champion of regenerative farming. Gabe's a producer and winner of many state and national soil health awards, including a Growing Green Award from the Natural Resource Defense Council and a Zero-Till Producer of the Year Award. In addition, he was named one of the 25 most influential agricultural leaders in the United States. Gabe recently published Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture, where he shares the story of healing his farm's soil and paves the road for other farmers to follow in his footsteps. Please make sure to subscribe to the Sustainability Matters Today podcast to learn more about Gabe Brown and other champions of sustainability. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining me, Gabe. Pleasure being with you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you signing a, a copy of your book, Dirt to Soil, for my mom and me. Uh, I read it with great interest, took tons of notes, and I learned a lot. I thought it was very interesting. Thank you. Um, and before we kind of jump into the details of your work, I'd love to start with your background. Uh, so in your book, Dirt to Soil, you wrote that you became obsessed with all things related to farming and ranching after a vocational agriculture class you took in ninth grade. And during and after that class, you learned as much as you could about conventional farming. And as I understand it, based on what, what you wrote, all of that knowledge basically started to fall apart when you had four years of crop failure, which you say completely changed your life. So first of all, is it unheard of to have four years of crop failure? Well, four years in a row, yes, uh, that's rather unusual. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about it is when we had those four years of crop failures, we were the only one in the local area that had four years of failure. There was one other farmer that had three years and several had two years, but we were the only one uh, unfortunate or as it turned out to be fortunate enough to have four years. Yeah, probably didn't feel very fortunate at the time, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> and so you, you call those four years the disaster years. And um, what exactly did you learn during that time that really shaped your understanding of regenerative farming? Well, it really took me down a path of teaching me the the principles of a healthy ecosystem. Uh I tell people, you know, I had started no-tilling just a year prior to that. So that that's one of the first uh, principles. And then because we had the hail, the hail uh, obviously uh, knocked down all the crops. That left uh, a nice amount of residue or armor or skin, whatever you want to call it, on the soil surface. And thus it was protecting the soil from 
wind erosion, water erosion, evaporation. And then because we had the the hailstorms after that, I had to figure out, okay, I got to grow some feed for my livestock. So I started to plant different uh, forage species such as uh, winter triticale and hairy vetch and sorghum sedan grass and cowpeas. So that taught me the power of diversity. And along with that, because I was growing some of these crops at a different time than most people do, that taught me the importance of of having a living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year. That's the fourth principle. And then because we literally did not have enough money to be able to afford to put up the hay, we allowed our livestock to graze some of these forages during the winter. And that taught me the fifth principle, that of animal integration. So I tell people that although those were four very difficult years to live through, they were the best thing that could have happened to us because it really drove home those five principles of a healthy functioning ecosystem. Yeah, I, I can certainly see how that sort of all worked. And were you aware of the five principles before or during those disaster years or you came upon them later on? Yeah, no, actually, uh, I had never heard of anybody talk about those, but it was shortly thereafter that uh, two people in particular, Jay Fear, who worked for the NRCS here in Bismarck, North Dakota, and John Sticka, who worked for the NRCS in Dickinson, North Dakota, started to talk about these five principles. And that's where I I then put them together and, and learned about them. And I realized, hey, that's that's what I was being shown through those four uh, disaster years. Yeah. So it seems like the the five principles, which um, you just outlined, if you think about kind of from a gen- very general perspective, uh, it's really about just getting out of the way and let, let nature do the work. In a lot of respect, it is, you know, so much of agriculture today is all about man trying to impose his or her will on nature. Mm-hmm. But if we look and observe, and I think we've lost that in in agriculture, we've lost the power of observation and we no longer observe how these ecosystems function. But if you observe how ecosystems function on land-based uh, ecosystems, they always have these five principles. And that's one of the reasons I tell producers from all over the world that that these principles can be used anywhere in the world where there's dry land. Uh, production agriculture, because the principles are universal, no matter where you go. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to come back to that in a little bit. Um, but the first sentence of your book starts with, our lives depend on soil. And the rest of the book describes why, as well as what farmers can do to heal the soil so that people can stay as healthy as possible. And the environment, as a result, is also as healthy as possible. Could you please provide some context on why healthy soils are so important? Well, <laughs> I tell people, you look at the the ills that society sees today, whether it's too much carbon in the atmosphere, whether it's a lack of clean water, whether it's too much nitrates or phosphorus in the watersheds into our, our rivers, lakes, estuaries, or look at the human health standpoint, and we have a human health crisis going on. Uh, what are... Some of the causes of that, well, 
It's lack of a healthy functioning soil ecosystem. If we have a healthy soil ecosystem, we're going to have more carbon in the soil. We're going to ha- we're going to hold the nutrients in both biology and living plants so they don't end up in a, into our watersheds. And a healthy soil will have the ability to produce and cycle all of the nutrients that not only the plants need, but that animals and people need also. So thus it can certainly positively affect human health as well. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. So healthy soils are clearly very important to so many different things. I mean, from human health to the environment, as you mentioned. But what is the current state of the soil on most farms? Well, I tell people I've had the good fortune to be on hundreds of farms and ranches in many different countries. And I have never, ever been on a single farmer ranch, including my own, that's not degraded. Because if you look at, at back at, from a historical context, and you look at where these ecosystems were, uh, we're all farming and ranching degraded ecosystems. And even myself, even though I've been able to regenerate this quite a bit, we're still degraded when we uh, look back and look at what scientists tell us these soils were like pre-European settlement. Hmm. So we're all farming and ranching degraded ecosystems. And, and why is that such a problem? It's a problem because of the current production model. The current production model that's prevalent in agriculture today is one of uh, heavy tillage, heavy use of a lot of these synthetics, whether it be fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, etc. One where it's all monocultures, there's not the diversity that there once was. And we've, in many cases, removed animals from the ecosystem. Mm. And you just don't find that in healthy ecosystems. So it's it's coming about as a result of our stewardship or lack thereof right. for our ecosystems. Seems like a like a difficult situation to be in where we're trying to do trying to get the most out of the land, but uh, by doing so, we're almost we're being counterproductive uh, in many ways. One of the principles you you mentioned and you just mentioned it again is the importance of animals in the ecosystem and the importance of grazing livestock. So livestock specifically meaning cows and uh, other animals like hogs, sheep, and chickens. And um, in Dirt to Soil, you bring up Jerry Brunetti's book, The Farm as Ecosystem, to demonstrate the importance of managing one's farm as an ecosystem. And you've already mentioned that a couple of times. And like you said, ecosystems have animals. Um, And then you also referenced Alan Savory, who's an ecologist who encourages uh, introducing grazing animals to areas that have become deserts. Uh, And and we do that as a way to bring back the greenery. Um, And so basically, as such, you're, you're recommending farmers to keep cows and other animals really because they enable soil to sequester and store carbon and bring life back into the soil. I guess, first of all, just to clarify, because on Brown's Ranch, you you raise cows differently than the way most cows are raised in the U.S. So what exactly is the difference? Sure. Uh, We have our cattle out on the landscape at all times. They're not confined uh, into a lot like most animals in the northern hemisphere are during 
uh, winter months, they're confined into a lot. Our, our cows are out on the landscape at all times. The other difference is we grass finish our beef animals. In other words, they're never fed grain. They're not confined in a feedlot. They're out there grazing forages all the time. And the big difference is one of A, for the of the well-being and the health of the animal, you know, it's, it's a much uh, more productive, healthier life for them when they're out doing what a cow evolved to do, grazing forage. Uh, the other thing is it's much, much better for the ecosystem. When ruminants, and I don't care if we're talking beef cattle or bison or any type of a ruminant is grazing a plant, that plant then, because it was grazed, starts sloughing off root exudates and roots because it needs to regrow. And it's doing that in order to attract biology, to cycle the nutrients and provide it for the plant so the plant can regrow. And nobody can argue at all with the fact that grazed forages will, such as grasses, etc., will sequester much more carbon than ungrazed forages. And if you look back from a historical context on how the the vast grasslands, and I don't care whether we're talking in the central plains of the United States or on the Serengeti, Africa, or on some of the, uh, the large grasslands throughout China, all of these grasslands were formed from large herds of grazing animals consuming and then being moved by predators and allowing that plants then the ability to recover before they had moved back and grazed it again. And that's what we do on our farm. We're, we're more or less just mimicking what a natural ecosystem does. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's very similar to what Alan Savory always talks about in terms of cattle and other large ruminants being very close together to avoid predators and moving frequently. And through that process, uh, basically eating the grass is there, uh, and also there's that hoof action, plus the the urine and manure from these ruminants. They really fertilize and sink all of that into the soil through their through the hoof action. It's really interesting to hear that uh, you know you're saying that it's so good for the environment, and yet we hear in the mainstream media frequently about climate change how cows and the meat industry as well uh, are considered to be some of the biggest culprits of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and I'm sure you've, you've heard um, you know, multiple times from many different people uh, how the methane that cows produce, um, and the EPA quotes it as well, that methane is 25 times worse as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Does grazing cattle and, and grass finishing and this process that, that you have on your farm, does that really outweigh all the potential negatives that people normally associate with cattle in the meat industry? Well, and then there's several things that need to be brought up here. One is a, uh, is a lack of context. They're not putting it in context, okay? Mm -hmm. There's a difference between animals out grazing on a pasture and animals confined in a feedlot. I tell people that I, too, disagree with having animals confined in feedlots. It's not natural. It's not good for the health of the animal. And we're feeding a ruminant grain, which changes the nutrient quality of their meats. And so 
uh, the meat that they in turn provide for us. And it's not a good thing. So we need to separate that. Also, animals in confinement are fed a lot of processed forage. In other words, it takes fossil fuel to put up all the hay and and the silage and then haul that to the the feedlot and feed it every day. Whereas in my situation, the animals are out there. They have four legs for a reason. They're harvesting it on their own. (laughs) And, And that's a more natural process. Now, the other thing, when we talk about methane, that most scientists totally overlook is that of methanotrophs. Methanotrophs are bacteria that actually consume methane. And it's scientifically proven that in graze, when animals are out grazing, these methanotrophs are near the soil surface and they're, they're actually living off, they're consuming the methane that these animals are putting out. But yet you never hear anybody talk about that. Now, obviously, the animals in a feedlot, they're correct. There's not enough methanotrophs there to do it. But the animals out on a landscape, and I don't care. I I always use this as an analogy. Okay, if ruminants are the culprit for what we're seeing today as far as too much carbon in the atmosphere, etc., why then wasn't this an issue when there was more bison grazing on the Great Plains than there are beef cattle on the Great Plains now. Hmm. You know, but nobody ever brings that up. You know, they don't stop and think, oh, gee, maybe it isn't the livestock that's a problem. Maybe it's man's management of the livestock that's the problem. Yeah. You know, you hear these stories about when people would move west uh, for the first time and they would encounter literally millions of bison running and they would be miles long. Yeah, where, you know, where did all the methane go? Yeah, See, because it's the methanotrophs and other microorganisms that actually consume that. And so we need to put everything in context and look at it as a whole, not just vilifying the cattle. Mm-hmm. That would be wrong to do. If, if we would remove grazing animals from the landscape, our problems would be even further compounded. So we need we need more animals grazing the landscape, not less. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the methanotropes, is that something that occurs in healthy soils? That, that's right. Methanotropes are naturally occurring microorganisms, and their populations actually fluctuate according to the amount of uh, grazing animals that are on a particular landscape. Hmm. So the more more animals there are, the more methanotropes there are. Sure, that's nature. Nature is self-healing, self-organizing, self-regulating. So nature tends to take care of things if we allow her to do so. Yeah, and that comes back to really getting out of the way and basically, as, as you said, mimicking the way a natural ecosystem works. So it all ties together. It seems so simple and like such a such an elegant solution um, to a very man-made, self-made issue, uh, just trying to control nature and put our will on nature and try to force it to do things that we want it to do rather than working with it. That's right. That, and that's difficult. You know, human beings, they want to be in control of everything. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we do not even begin to comprehend just how complex nature is and with all the biology and everything 
uh, working together in harmony, you know, in order to be self-healing, self-regulating, self-organizing. So if we would just step back and let nature uh, function, we would be much, much better off. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it all ties into, as you said, you know, people love to control things and it's a very much of an ego thing where if you're not able to control it, then you know, you're not kind of as strong or as powerful. And it, it comes down to kind of being sort of at peace with yourself and knowing that it's okay to let other things kind of do their thing. So in this case, you know, let nature be itself and then you work with it. And that is where the power lies rather than trying to force it on. Switching gears, I'd, I'd love to know more about the financial side because as you said, a farm cannot be sustainable, let alone regenerative, unless it's profitable. And yet, instead of focusing on profit, most farmers are actually concerned with yield, meaning how much they're able to produce. So if, if farmers aren't profitable, uh, what, the part I don't really get is how do they earn a living? What do they live off? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, in agricultural to, in agriculture today, with the current production model, it's not very profitable if you pull out all of the government subsidies. You know, here in the United States, for example, uh, most farmers have the ability to take out what's called revenue insurance. It's a form of crop insurance that guarantees them a certain dollar amount for each acre of a specific crop or commodity that they produce. And that's what's keeping them going is that their management decisions are tied to that crop insurance, that revenue insurance. And so that's why you see just tremendous overproduction of corn and soybeans and wheat and cotton, for instance, because those are the commodities, the grains that uh, have the highest uh, revenue insurance. And so Farmers lock that in knowing, well, if I keep my expenses below a certain point, I'm guaranteed this much income. And I'm, I'm proud to say that on our ranch, we do not accept any government subsidies of any kind. I think we fail as a business if we can't make it without those subsidies. So we, we refuse to take part in those programs. Yeah, I th well, I think that makes a lot of sense to not accept it because, as you say, you know, farming really is a business. And you mentioned in the book as well that you know what other business has that kind of quote unquote luxury, so to speak, of being able to just get people's you know the citizens U.S. citizens tax dollars and let that equal their profit. And it doesn't really seem very fair um, or That's right. a sustainable business. Exactly. It's, it's not. And that's the, the, one of the issues is, you know, one of the five principles is diversity. Well, you go on to most farms and they have very little diversity. They're only growing uh, two or three different cash crops and mm -hmm. that's it. They don't have the diversity that they once did. And that has negative ramifications on not only their operation, not being resilient, but on uh, the whole ecosystem. Yep. As you mentioned, one of the four principles or five principles is, is that diversity. So this obsession with yield, which um, it seems that the yield comes from the fact that that's how they get their revenue or crop insurance. 
Um, but that obsession with yield kind of just fuels the broken farming system and that ecosystem. One of the things that you say in terms of how farmers can be very profitable is actually selling directly to consumers, which is something that you do through your Nourished by Nature label. And uh, first of all, it's um, a really great and perfect name for the brand that I know you spent a lot of time perfecting it. Can you describe what exactly is Nourished by Nature? Sure. So Nourished by Nature is a, a business that my son actually developed. And and what he does is he buys the, the grass-finished lamb and the pork, the pastured pork and the grass-finished beef and the honey and the eggs and all of these products that Brown's Ranch produces. And then he has them processed and fabricated and then sells them under the Nourish by Nature label. And that's his own uh, private label that's trademarked with the United States. And so mm. only he can use that label on his products. And he sells uh, these products to individuals uh, throughout North Dakota and around the United States as well. Fantastic. Yeah, you have over a thousand customers. Yeah, well, now it's a, yep, we've actually expanded since the since the book came out. Uh, you know, once you finish writing the book, it's uh, outdated already. And, yeah, and, instantaneously. Uh, yeah, he told me he has about 1,500 wow. customers now that are buying on a regular basis from him. Fantastic. That's really exciting. It just shows that that people are really interested in it and motivated to get very high quality produce. It seemed to me that you're recommending is really that farmers, in order to increase their profit and to not rely on subsidies, you know, farmers really should try and sell directly and, and market directly to the consumer. Did I understand that correctly? Do you believe that every farmer in the US should do that? Or even is it feasible that everyone could do that? Well, what I what I challenge other farmers and ranchers to do, if you look at uh, the latest statistics I saw in the United States that for every food dollar, the farmer receives about 14 cents out of that food dollar. Well, that means 86% goes for, you know, packaging and transportation and sales, you know, of these products. Well, if farmers and ranchers are unsatisfied with the profit that they have, they need to try and lay claim, so to speak, to a higher percentage of that food dollar. Now, I'm not saying everyone, every farmer and rancher out there has the ability and would want to take on the challenge of direct marketing all their products. Right. But why not move higher up that chain, the food chain? To, so that you can pocket more of that food dollar. So perhaps uh, uh, form a food hub and, and go in with other farmers and ranchers to market their product. Uh, that would lay claim to a greater share of the food dollar. The benefit of that to the farmer rancher, obviously, is more dollars in their pocket. But to the consumer, the benefit is they get to know where their food comes from. And they get to meet the farmers and ranchers and they then can feel confident that they're supporting a farmer or rancher who is using these regenerative practices in order to heal the landscape. Yeah, I think it's a great thing to strive for. Uh, it's interesting to think 
as you were saying, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, you know, if all farmers, every single one in the US and eventually the world, if they all went into a model where they're selling directly, or at least as you've said, you know, moving up the food chain a bit, it would really completely change the food landscape, um, you know, ranging from supermarkets all the way through to things like fast food chains as well. The The places where all of these big food purveyors would be getting their product uh, all of a sudden would kind of vanish because farmers would be either working together to, you know, pool together, maybe create some sort of CSAs or going just direct. So, I mean, it's a very interesting world to think about. Is that something that, have you kind of considered what that kind of world would look like? Oh, yeah. Many, many times. <laughs> I think one thing, we would have a much more diverse diet. Mm -hmm. And so, I think that's a good thing from a human health standpoint. Uh, we would eat more seasonally. Yeah. In other words, what, what's available at that time of the year. All of those things, I think, would help advance uh, human health in that, you know, we'd be getting a much more diverse diet and array of all these uh, micronutrients and plant secondary metabolites and all these uh, uh, key elements that drive human health. So I think that's a positive. The other thing is uh, the farmer or rancher would have a lot more diversity on their individual farms and ranches. And so that helps the farmer and rancher in many ways. It certainly helps the ecosystem, but it also helps build resiliency in the form of if you have multiple or many different uh, crops growing and livestock on your operation, you're going to be resilient to a disaster in terms of, uh, uh, you know, production wise. If, if just, you know, a hailstorm came out like yeah. happened in, in my case, you know, it's not, if you're growing many more crops at different times of the year, it'd make you more resilient yeah. economically to those natural disasters. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting that this idea of diversity keeps coming up over and over, whether it's um, for the uh, business side, whether it's for the ecosystem, whether it's for human health. Um, and also, I mean, if you, if you, even if you look at what the cattle eat, you know, you don't want to just feed them one thing uh, because uh, you mentioned this in the book that cows just know what kind, what nutrients they need and where to get them. Uh, so if they're lacking in something, they'll go eat that specific type of grass. Yeah, that diversity is um, such an important theme and element in the success of a lot of different things. To look at the other side of the coin, so not just in terms of ways that uh, you can make more money, but profitability also requires cutting unnecessary expenditures. Uh, and you know, if if you can both make more money and reduce how much you're spending, uh, then you really increase your profit. Uh, one one way that you can reduce the expenditures is by taking the waste from one enterprise to fuel the profit of another. When I first heard you say that, actually in a YouTube video, I kind of had this aha moment and it was just so logical. Uh, and it, I think it's very profound in a very straightforward way. But what exactly does a farmer need to do to take full advantage of all the waste streams on their farm? Well, I'll use as an example that of a grain farmer who's producing grains, whether it be corn or wheat or barley or oats. Typically, that farmer would uh, 
uh, load up that grain and haul it to a grain terminal and sell it. Well, that grain terminal, when that farmer delivers that grain there, they're going to take a sample and determine how much weed seed is in there and how much cracked and broken grain is in there. And then they're not going to pay the farmer, obviously, for that. They're only going to pay them for the the clean portion of the grain. Well, Mm. what we do on our farm is we actually take our grain and run it through what's called a grain cleaner. And that grain cleaner sifts out all the, the weed seeds and the cracked and broken kernels. So we have that. We're hauling clean grain then to the grain terminal or selling it as seed. But we have that, that what's called grain screenings. It's the, the waste product. Well, that waste product, those cracked and broken kernels, that's the perfect feed for our laying hens, for our broilers, for our turkeys, and for our hogs. So we're taking what would be waste that we would not get money for, and we're adding value. We're, we're producing uh, high-quality edible proteins from that. And uh, the amount of money to be made by doing that is significant to us. And to me, it's just good business. Uh, why, why wouldn't uh, everyone want to take advantage of things like that? Exactly. It's, um, it's, it's free. And I'm sure if you look at kind of conventional, you know, chicken farmers or, or uh, any sort of poultry, Mm -hmm. they're probably buying grains in order to feed. Yeah. Most all of them are. And, and not only that, they're, they're, they're paying a lot of money for it, but it doesn't offer the animals a really diverse diet either. And I, Mm -hmm. and I often use this analogy. Okay, if you would have a duck or goose, for instance, out in the wild foraging, they're going to eat all different kinds of grain seed and they're going to eat plants and, you know, a very wide array of different uh, 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 foods that day that they would consume. Yet here we are with our chickens in confinement. We're feeding them the same thing over and over and over again. Now that leads to consistent gains but does it lead to health of the animal and then in turn is the meat that that animal is providing us is that healthy does it have a wide array of nutrients in it and the answer of course is is no and that's why we need to get back to these types of production models that really allow the animals to express their individuality and let them be able to forage for for what they want and have that diverse diet. And in turn, that'll make their bodies much more complete and nutrient dense, thus providing us with with mm. a wider array of nutrients. And again, it's the, the whole diversity element coming back. Yeah, it's amazing because not only are you reducing the amount that you're spending on things, but you also end up having a new stream of income as a result. So it's very much win-win. What's amazing, and, and perhaps this has changed since uh, since the book was written, but uh, there's really only four of you on the farm that are working as far as I understand. Uh, sometimes you have interns for several months out of the year, but really the primary kind of people working the farm is, is just, there's only four of you. Yeah, it's changed a little bit now. Um we have hired a full-time hired man, and so it's it's our my wife and I, our son, 
Paul. His uh, girlfriend, Shalini, works full-time for us, and we have uh, one full-time hired man, Andrew. So there's five of us, but it's changed a little bit in the fact that that I really, uh, the past several years now, am able to spend uh, very little time on the farm and ranch. Uh, my nice. life is occupied with traveling around the world promoting regenerative agriculture. So pretty much still only four. Uh, unfortunately, we had to stop uh, uh, doing the internship program simply because, you know, we loved having the interns, but it is a huge demand of time to educate and train the interns. Yep. And because I'm not home as much, we've had to drop that here recently. Yeah, and I'm sure the kind of the challenge with, with interns is um, – it's not like you're training them once and then you get to enjoy the fruit of that effort for years to come. You have to do it every single year. Right, right. And we, we sure enjoyed it, but it's just for the time being right now, uh, I felt that I need to be out promoting this. I think that uh, the world's in dire need of regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. I certainly agree, and and that's one of the reasons why I was just so fascinated with 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 the book and with what you're promoting. Um, just coming back to the fact that there's only four of you on on the farm. Uh, how many? I mean, in in the book, there I think you mentioned there were about seventeen different enterprises that you were running. Uh, sounds like there's probably more now. I'm, I'm sure you're still adding and experimenting with various different ones. But how do only four people or let's say five manage so many different things? I mean, isn't that really stressful? <laughs> and, and you, you, you know, when people look at that, they, they throw up their hands and say, well, that's just crazy. Who would want to do that? Yeah. But what they don't realize is they're looking at it from the mindset of conventional quote unquote agriculture they're not looking at it from the mindset of regenerative agriculture. And by that, I mean, okay, our livestock are out grazing pretty much year round. You know, they're out there foraging for themselves. So we're not doing all the things that, that other people in conventional agriculture would do. For instance, we're not hauling feed out to our cattle every day and then, you know, you have to put up the feed, you have to haul it out there and feed them, and then you have the manure to get rid of and dispose of. We're not going to town to buy fertilizers for our crops and applying those fertilizers. We're not out there buying pesticides and fungicides and applying them, and we're not giving our cattle and other animals all these vaccinations, you know, and so you need to look at all the things we're not doing, then you'll realize, oh, well, maybe they really don't spend very much time with them. We can we can do more enterprises because we allow the enterprise to take care of itself, so to speak. There's not all of these unnecessary steps taking place. Yeah, and that it sounds like it just comes back to the idea of letting nature be nature and kind of getting out of the way. And by doing so, you actually end up saving tons of time and uh, getting a, a healthier and better result in the end anyway. And moving over to the health side, and I know you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times already, but uh, there was a very interesting study that you highlighted in the book, which said that people today would have to eat eight oranges to get the equivalent amount of vitamins that our grandparents would have gotten from 
a single orange when they were young. Uh, and the same thing goes for meat where we'd have to eat twice as much beef, chicken, or pork to get the same levels of certain nutrients that were available two generations ago. So to clarify, those eight oranges and that double meat is applicable to conventionally grown food. Well, unfortunately, it's probably applicable to 99% of the food that's grown today. Mm. And I'll use this as an example. Even look in, in one's own garden. Okay, uh, if you look at how most gardens are managed, they're tilled, usually with a rototiller or some type of implement. There's not a lot of diversity. There's not uh, much added to the soil as far as uh, plant biomass. So we're not cycling that carbon out of the atmosphere and pumping it into the soil to feed all the biology. And unfortunately, even in organic agriculture production. Organic is good in the sense that we don't have the unwanted chemical aspect of it, the pesticides and herbicides, etc. But much of organic agriculture is based off of excessive tillage. And when we do the excessive tillage, we're destroying mycorrhizal fungi, we're destroying the biology in the soil, we're not able to cycle the nutrients and transfer those nutrients to the plants. So uh, I tell people organic is a step in the right direction, but it certainly does not mean that that food is nutrient dense. And so one of the goals of regenerative agriculture is to look at ecosystem function as a whole and how do we get all these nutrients cycling so that we can have food in that which is much higher in nutrient density. Yeah, I think um, I think it's important to really make that distinction between organic and regenerative because Brown's Ranch, um, as long as far as I understand, is not organic, but it's very much regenerative. Hey, well, it would be very easy for me to certify our ranch organic if I so chose, because we don't use any of those type of amendments. In saying that, there really is not an incentive for me to certify organic. Uh, our clients, these 1,500 people who buy from us, uh, they do so knowing full good and well what we do and the practices we do, and they're very happy with that. Uh, we're not going to get more money for our product by certifying organic. Now, I'm not telling people not to certify organic, and I'm certainly not telling people, oh, don't buy organic. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is find the farmers and ranchers who are, who are growing these plants and these, uh, raising these animals in a regenerative model and then uh, use your buying dollar and purchase from them. Absolutely. I think voting with your dollar is probably the most powerful thing you can do. It, it, there's no misunderstanding in, in that context. You know, Money goes here, so we'll people will do more of that in order to capture that dollar. So if if we just compare out of, out of curiosity now, any standard organic farm versus Brown's Ranch and all of the various methods that you use that are very much in the regenerative uh, kind of sphere, what would the food quality be like if you were to compare the two? Well, and and... You know, obviously, I'm going to be a bit biased, but I can only yeah. go off of what uh, people have told me is when they eat products from the Browns Ranch, they're tasting the land. 
one's body knows when you eat something that's truly nutrient dense, your body is satiated. It tells you that's good. I want more of it. And, and because it's tasting those nutrients, those nutrients are satisfying what one's body needs. And so I think the big difference that one would find is just A would be the taste and B would be the satisfaction that one one's body uh, signals itself after you've consumed some of the Nourished by Nature products. Hmm. Kind of switching gears again, but really tying into this idea of organic farming. And you mentioned this at the beginning as well, that really any farmer that has soil and sunshine uh, and land, I guess, uh, could really take advantage of the farming practices that you've outlined uh, and really these five principles of soil health. Uh, but as as far as I understand, I think there's only around 1% of farmers currently in the US that are certified organic, which is, as you said, a step in the right direction. Uh, based on what you've seen and you're, you've been traveling a lot and you've been talking to a lot of different people, how many farmers do you think are regenerative uh, in the same way that you are? Well, regenerative is a, is a broad term and it's, uh, you know, there's different, people are at different stages in their journey down mm. this regenerative path. So the good news is it's kind of like a snowball that's starting to roll downhill now in that yeah. we're seeing a lot of the, the farmers like in my immediate area here in North Dakota, over 70% of the farmers are practicing no-till. In other words, they don't till the soil. And we're getting more and more farmers that are using cover crops and integrating cover crops into, into their cropping system. We're seeing uh, more and more farmers that are integrating livestock onto the cropland. So it's becoming a much uh, larger percent and the good news is we have a lot of, uh, of large multinational companies that are looking at regenerative agriculture and how they can help their suppliers, being the farmers and ranchers, move down the regenerative path. And I think that's a good thing. Any Anytime we can move any farmer or rancher forward into this type of production model, it's a positive, not only for the farmer or rancher, but for society as well. Absolutely. I don't I wasn't aware that big multinational companies are moving in that direction or at least investigating it. And I don't think that that's getting that much attention currently. Well, I my business partners and I, we own uh, uh, we have two businesses. One is called Soil Health Academy, and that's our nonprofit business where uh, we go educate farmers, ranchers, consumers, businesses as to regenerative agriculture. And then our other business is called Understanding Ag. And Understanding Ag is the consulting uh, business for us. And we consult on farms and ranches. And we also consult for uh, major businesses. Uh, we have an agreement in place with General Mills and we're working with them uh, to educate some of their oat producers and suppliers as to regenerative agriculture. Because of uh, client privilege, I'm not going to mention some of the other large multinationals that we're involved with, but there's several of them. 
right now that uh, uh, have hired us to help educate them as to regenerative agriculture and take their producers down the same path. That's fantastic news. So things are really progressing in the right direction. <laughs> they are. It's a, it's a little overwhelming at the moment for us, but uh, it's a good thing. Sounds like a, a good challenge to have. You mentioned that one of the biggest issues in terms of having people really commit to converting to regenerative agriculture is this peer pressure of, I'm guessing, really sticking with the conventional model because that's what's been known. That's what many neighbors are doing. Uh, you know, if 70% of farmers in North Dakota are moving to no-till and cover crops are being implemented, I'm, I'm guessing that that's kind of changing now. But for people who are listening to this podcast and want to help even more, what can what can they do to encourage farmers to give up the conventional ways and move over to a regenerative form of agriculture? Well, the number one thing they can do, of course, is to vote with their buying dollar. I don't think that most consumers really realize how important that is. And it's important in a number of ways. Uh, for one thing, that helps support family farms if they're spending their buying dollar buying, you know, fruits or vegetables or pasture proteins from farmers and ranchers who are using these regenerative practices. But it also really improves their health as well. And Right now, we're working on a number of studies that are, are comparing food grown in different production models. And we're doing the nutrient testing of that food to determine, is it really healthier, higher in nutrients, if it's grown on these regenerative soils? And so far, the preliminary data looks very, very encouraging. Mm. And so I think there's several benefits to the consumers for going down that path. I think one of the kind of biggest arguments that I hear is, um, you know, it's all well and good to talk about how important eating organic food is, but it's just so expensive. Uh, is that something that you've encountered in the past? Well, well, you know, one of the things that I often, people often say to me, well, Gabe, you know, your Nourished by Nature products are priced a lot higher in the right. supermarket. And and I tell them, yes, they, they are. And that's for a number of reasons. Number one, because the demand is there. And so if the demand's there, you know, supply meets demand and, and, mm -hmm. uh, that determines the price. You know, we, we have strong demand for our products. And so we price them accordingly. Uh, number two, though, that, that people really need to be aware of. Those people who are buying our products are doing so for a number of reasons, but one of those is they want truly nutrient-dense products. Their bodies are telling them, hey, we want more of that product. Now, what would that mean to consumers if you're, if you're much healthier? And I, I use this as an example. You know, I'm, I'm 58 years old. I've been to a doctor once in the last, uh, 35 years. Okay. So, Great. you know, but I consume mainly products that we grow and raise on our operation. So what would that do to people's medical bills if they were healthy? And, mm. 
not having to, you know, use all these prescriptions and, and, uh, and things like that. Now, I don't want to get static from people saying, oh, you know, you need to go to a doctor for a regular checkup. Yes, please do. Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, okay, I'll use another example. I have now been on 204, you know, 204 flights since October. Okay. If somebody's going to get sick, wouldn't it be someone who spends that much time cooped up in an airplane (laughs) and in airports? And yet I just don't get sick because my body is getting the nutrients it needs. So I think consumers need to look at it from that perspective also. What's your health worth to you? You know, and if you could cut back on prescriptions and, you know, cold medications and all these other things because you don't get sick, what, what's that worth to you also? Absolutely. In a previous episode, I interviewed a um, farmer named Luke Peterson. Uh, and he, when I asked him this question, uh, he said, you can either pay the farmer now or pay the doctor later. That's a good one. I think that sums it up very neatly. Yeah. Yeah. I might have to steal that one from Luke. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'd uh, he'd appreciate that. He's a, um, a fan of yours as well. And um, as we start to wrap up in the last couple minutes here, I, I always like to ask for a book recommendation, but I think the answer in this case is very obvious here. Dirt to Soil is really the place to start if you haven't read it. Um, I've read it and I highly recommend it. Um, but for people who haven't had a chance to get their hands on it yet, where can people get a copy? Yeah, Dirt to Soil is available through most, most uh, major bookstores or from Chelsea Green Publishing. Yeah, Chelsea Green Publishing is, um, I was reading their little intro about who they are, and I think that's a fantastic company as well, very much focused on sustainability and the environment because books are made of paper and paper comes from trees, so it's important to keep in mind. Um, and for people who are interested in learning more about what you do and all your work, and you've mentioned that you have the Soil Health Academy, the Understanding Ag, where can people find all those things and learn more about, about all of that? Thank you. So we have website, soilhealthacademy.org uh, or understandingag.com, or they can go on the nourishbynature.us website. Great. And speaking of Nourished by Nature, uh, can anyone buy those products or what's the best way that people can taste some of these, some of your nutritious produce? Yes, anyone in the United States. Unfortunately, we do not have the capability to ship overseas at this point in time, (laughs) but anyone in the United States can go on nourishbynature.us and uh, order our products through that website. Excellent. I'll have to give it a try next time I'm back in California. (laughs) Please do. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolutely fascinating and very enlightening discussion. And uh, yeah, good luck with all of the many, many projects that you're doing. Uh, Good to know that nature is on your side in terms of all the enterprises on your farm. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing about all the progress you make in terms of spreading the good word on regenerative agriculture. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure visiting with you today. All right, Gabe. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Episode 3 of Season 2. If you'd like to learn more about Gabe and his work on Browns Ranch, visit their website at brownsranch.us or like their Facebook page at Browns Ranch. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. We're on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, and really anywhere else where you can listen to podcasts. 
And let us know you listened to this episode on Instagram. Tag us at Browns Ranch and at Sustainability Matters Today. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks and talk to you soon.